So I noticed that it's always you starting each episode with a question. Yes. So let's switch it up a bit. Let me ask it, you know, keep everyone on their toes. Okay, shoot. I don't know what the question is. So, have you ever heard of cannabis and psychedelics being used in a person's end-of-life plans, such as pain relief and management? Not so much for end-of-life, but I'm thinking more for, like, PTSD and for psychedelics and pain management for cannabis. Is that what today's episode is about? Yeah, a section of it. Oh, I didn't know Phila Timo was cool. Well, I mean, you are a part of it, so obviously it would be. Good point. If you bring Bro Rogan on as a guest today, I'm quitting the show. I didn't bring up DMT, relax. It was cannabis. It was entirely possible that you didn't. Okay, well, sorry to disappoint our crossover of fans with Joe's, but he's not on today's episode. Okay, good. Today's guest is actually Olga Nikolaev. I met her through the thanatology course I took in the fall because she was an instructor. She's an end-of-life nurse, dying well advocate, and a cannabis educator. One of those things is not like the others. <laughs> to be honest, I'd never even thought about cannabis for end-of-life care, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Totally. But in the first half of our discussion, we touch on a whole slew of topics that include her approach to children and adult education as it comes to death literacy and the integration of a holistic framework when it comes to dealing with end of life. A holistic framework sounds, sounds nice and digestible, to be honest. Hopefully it's better than some edible experiences. Her approach with clients revolves around a framework that focuses on their physical, mental, emotional and sexual wellness, which I find absolutely fascinating. I refer you to my earlier comment. One of those things is not like the others. She explains each of them in more detail later in the episode. So her holistic approach, as I mentioned, really resonated with me from a spiritual perspective, like learning to better understand our body and the way it works and functions in the world. Hmm. Okay, but would you be able to explain it to a non-spiritual person like myself? Yeah, so... The best way I can do it is it's common knowledge that stress is held in the body through aches and pains that we have, right? So she makes a mention that grief is no different. When you say held, like what, what exactly do you mean? Just hugging yourself. No, seriously. It's basically the mind-body connection. How your thoughts and thinking impact the way you move your body. Right, but is that from a scientific perspective or...? Yeah, it's more of a physiological approach, like your approach to meditation, your personal approach to meditation. Okay, yeah. So like understanding that scientifically it's proven to benefit no matter what your spiritual beliefs are. And obviously if any of our listeners are spiritual, keep doing you. Yes, again, this is a judgment-free safe space, Philotimites. Do you want to do the end of the segment too, Emma? Since it was obviously an issue for you at the start. Okay. Speaking of perspectives, let's hear Olga's. Olga, thank you for speaking with me today. You're welcome. My pleasure, Maria. So several of your roles can fall under the educator category, whether educator is in the title or not. Um, you're also a course facilitator for end-of-life doulas. I'd love for you to walk me through the work that you do and the communities that you support through the work. 
Okay. So, um, so I am a facilitator of a number of different courses through Centennial College, which actually has um, five core courses around the field of thanatology, which is the field of death, dying, loss, and grief, um, and have been doing that for probably almost three years now, coming on to four years. So I've had a wonderful opportunity to engage a lot of different participants, including yourself, who are interested in learning about thanatology, learning about the history, how do we as a society really come to understand death and dying, right? What are the kind of social structures that shape um, our approach to death and dying? Um, and then hopefully also giving participants some really good uh, knowledge so they themselves can potentially move into um, supportive roles, maybe as a death doula, maybe as a grief grief support person, maybe as a hospice volunteer. I think that there's right now a lot of folks who are very interested in, in this field and, and oftentimes for themselves as well. Um, as you know, Maria, many of the, the courses have kind of self-reflective kind of assignment and exercises, which really, I think, assist um, a lot of us to kind of be able to share our personal stories, our death stories and experiences of, of being with someone who is dying or has died and those grieving, um, but also to heal some of, some of those aspects um, that they might need to heal, right? Sometimes people don't have the information that they um, that would have been valued, valuable to them then, and they acquire it a bit later, and then um, they kind of move forward to, to help people based on the information that, that they know. So this has been accumulating my education and, and where I put my, my energy, um, but a lot of it really has been on the focus of end of life. I think that was something that started for me very early on in my training as a, as a nurse and really being able to see that the basic nursing training, while it has some element of end of life care education, it didn't really have sort of the, the holistic and the very broad scope of looking at not only at the biophysical elements of death and dying and grief, but also on the emotional and the spiritual um, aspects. So I've been a, a lifelong learner um, in this field probably for half my life now <laughs> and will more than likely continue um, to do that. So I'm always looking at where can I put my energy. Um, a lot of my personal training and, and professional experience, as well as training, is really in adult education, right? How can I, through knowledge, translation, really empower people so that they can um, be a little bit more comfortable with the uncomfortable a lot of coping techniques also uh, revolve around mindfulness. I've added the cannabis education because I think there's a real opportunity not only to provide some really good education on how cannabis can assist people in end of life, so alleviating some of the pain, also to alleviate not only physical pain, but potentially existential suffering, emotional pain. Some existential and dread. I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. I think that there's also a possibility to potentially use cannabis in the grieving process and maybe in even in the realm of counseling, right? So using it as a way of um, enabling a person to maybe 
attain a level of comfort and ease, and then have an opening to talk in more depth about their own particular insight through a particular life experience. Fundamentally, it's also about, um, I'm not the expert, here's the information and that I can provide for you. And then the person will kind of take that in, integrate it into their own experience, and then have, have knowledge to move forward. Yeah. And it, to your point, you, it sounds as if you really made a holistic approach to your own practice mm-hmm. when, you, when you bring it together. And one thing that you did mention, you, you focus on adult education, and um, in, which is phenomenal. I think everyone should be learning this throughout their entire life. When it comes to childhood education, I speak to many people about this, and a lot of people know my thoughts on it. And I, I want to say um, our current education system does such a disservice to kids and inevitably future generations because they're going to grow up and be at a certain level of death illiteracy. If you could, what would you like to see changed in our education curriculum? And who do you think would be involved in making those changes happen? Good question. I think there's a lot of changes that are probably needed in in how we educate children, right? We're also looking at, you know, I just saw a recent article this morning where the children actually can't even really tell time um, that they're so uh, accustomed to digital that some some of the kids oh can't even do cursive writing because they're so um, indoctrinated into the computer, right, and, and typing and those kinds of things. So you want to kind of situate, I think, death literacy in the context of, of education as a whole. Been addressing, you know, families' values and how some of the attitudes and approaches around death and dying is fundamentally rooted in the family, where sometimes that's seen as outside of the school system, right? So, what are the bridges or the bridges that we can actually create so that we can enhance that education for kids? And there are folks who are doing some work. Right. So somebody like Dr. Kathy Cortez Miller is doing some great work in in putting death literacy into the school system and engaging folks that way up in um, she's in Thunder Bay, I believe. Amazing. Is there anyone else? There. Um, there probably is. I think most of the time the death literacy that, that is really coming out for children is more so um, engaging with kids in their grieving process. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. how. And I think even even for adults, I think um, initiating sort of the uh, um, education through the lens of grief. Right. Because we're we're all all of us are going to get impacted by by death. Right. And, yeah. you know, whether it's our own or, or the people that and that we are in relationship with. Um, and I think grief might be the good place to start. Right, because one of the things that I have also seen over the last couple of years of training end of life doulas across Canada is that doulas are very eager to go out there and to give all the information. Having said that, um, they're not as they're not as easily received, right? So they have to really um, sort of market themselves in order to have people be interested. And so one of the things I have suggested to them is is go the way of the grief first, right? And especially now, right? We're we're all grieving, so we could all use some information about how grief moves through the body, how it's oftentimes something that we can't always control. And again, this might be something that in our society, because we're so 
you know, there's such an importance of our mind and the ability to control and the ability to work and those kinds of things that um, sometimes there's a bit of that friction between the reality of how grief moves and then our society and what we're demanding of our of our people, right? Get back to work, right? And then instead of maybe um, saying, you know, let's bring in death education or death literacy, why don't we combine it into sort of life knowledge, right? Mm. Because one of the things that, that we have to be really um, aware of is that children have developed you know, different developmental processes, right? So a three-year-old thinks of death and will be impacted by death and dying in a very different way because they think of it in a very different way. Same thing as a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old, 15, and so on and so forth. So you always have to consider the developmental age. But I think there's opportunities where we could potentially, um, you know, find those teachable moments to educate children about the normalcy right? The normalcy of death as part of life, not something to be avoided, not something that's seen as a failure, but something that is in everyday process and not just about humans, right? It's it's involved in in the food we eat, not just animals, because even the, you know, the lettuce out of the ground is on its way or is dead, <laughs> right? It may not necessarily and sometimes we judge a level of aliveness by the level of consciousness, but maybe we haven't really, you know, um, done this study to really identify that plants themselves have consciousness. To your point about how yeah, death doulas have to essentially market themselves to get people interested in, in grief, I want to say right. across the board as a society, we're very much we're very much focused on being reactive as opposed to proactive. And Correct. I'm really glad that you brought up the point about developmental age um, for children when it comes to speaking about grief, mm -hmm. because we also have to look at family values and like life experiences within that individual, because to draw parallels to the whole sex education curriculum, at least in Ontario, when that was completely reworked, I had no issues with it. I thought this was great. They're talking about key information that kids need to know about growing up and not just learn through their own experiences. Um, but there were tons of families who thought it was going against their values. They were against what was being taught. It was too early to be teaching them, for example, about what consent is, which I don't think is the case, but it, it is what it is for some people. Um, so I can imagine the same type of reaction um, or aversion to this conversation or to this curriculum. Would We'd have the same situation arise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you would. I think you would have some of that turbulence um, as well with that literacy. So it might be more advantageous to integrate it into, right, using those teachable moments so that when you're talking about history, <laughs> you know, you talk about genocide and you talk about death, you talk about the impact of, you know, those kinds of things. Exactly. And that death awareness can give us um, insight on how to, I think, how to live better, how to, and I think especially now, right, we're really now have the hindsight having 2020, 2020. <laughs> vision. <laughs> and you're going to say that. <laughs> Of course, yes. <laughs> of course. I'm a big numbers person too, right? It's finding meaning in numbers. So now we have the focus, the one, to look back and say what is important. 
And we're seeing it, right? The rage and the outrage that's coming out of how we treat our elders, how we treat those people at the end of life is coming to the forefront. It's saying this is not, this is not good enough. We need to do yeah. better and we need to do better, not just, you know, having more palliative care folks, but really integrating that knowledge into this all of society. When it comes to taking to what you said so long to get these processes in place. I want to, I want to jump to medically assisted suicide for a second. And the first person in Canada, her name was Sue Rodriguez, uh, was the first person to go through medically assisted suicide back in the nineties, 1994. And she wasn't, wasn't actually Maria though. Oh, tell me more. No, I, I think, uh, you know, when, if you look back, so if fundamentally we're looking at medically assisted dying with the opportunity for the person to have the right to end their life, mm-hmm. that's, you have to go back to some of the legislation in relationship to suicide itself. So the act of suicide of one person taking their own life was decriminalized in 1970. Before that time, if somebody tried and failed, they could face criminal charges. That is bonkers to me. That that, that is just bonkers. Again, think about the society. So we're creating a society of safety. And that was one of the things that we put forth. We said, we don't want anyone to end their life. We want to have a society that can provide the care and compassion. And what probably we realized in the 70s was we actually can't really control that. And we need to give people the opportunity that if their life is, is so much, has so much suffering, because that is so objective, right? It's really hard to impose or to criminalize the act of somebody taking their own life. Of course, there's still safeties and there's still a lot of education around providing, not necessarily, you know, I'm sort of adverse to suicide prevention. I'm more so interested about suicide education, right? So looking Mm. at how does a person get to have those suicide thoughts? What else is happening with them and their desire to to end their life, right? What else is going on? And how can we as a society then not necessarily address the single act, but look at what are the social services that we need to improve in order to reduce the suffering, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, right? So when you when you look back, it was actually Sud Rodriguez was the first person to have enough affluence maybe and enough, um, you know, personal power to battle the Canadian government to say, you need to change this. She wasn't the only one. There were many people before her, maybe not as, um, you know, not as prominent in the media. And remember, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of things going on in the U.S. as well. Dr. Kevorkian was, you know, this is not a new contemplative um, kind of thing where people want to be able to um, end their life, but certainly was the first to really bring it out to say, we need to do better. Also, you know, that was in the in the works and, and making sure that the safeguards and the guidelines and the requirements were so that um, it didn't necessarily, you know, enable people to kind of sign up right away. How do we do this in such a way that still honors, um, you know, life and provides an opportunity for people who are really suffering to to have some assistance in ending their life? It's... And it's not just policies, right? This is a criminal code. Like, that's big deal. That's Supreme Court. That's like, you know, <laughs> that's, 
you know, that kind of stuff, you know, years and years to develop and to um, create. So I'm not actually surprised that it took so long. I think it's one of those things where it reached a tipping point. I think we had a lot of people before, and then it reached that perfect timing, right? Maybe the perfect timing, I don't know. You know, part of my inquisitive mind sometimes thinks about, well, we offered up medically assisted dying at the time when we had this humongous gray tsunami, right? So that population of baby boomers who were reaching their end of life and maybe the two... um, Maybe the two, right? Because you have to think about who are the folks who are advocating for, right? So people like Sue Rodriguez who had um, very specific illnesses that were very debilitating, very um, uh, in some way undignified in, in their in their estimation, right, of yeah. what they did not want to encounter at the end of life. And they wanted to have other options besides the options that we we have currently, because we have other options, right? We have other options on how we can do um, end of life. Are there, are there any policies from your perspective that you'd like to see changed or even created? Um, oh my gosh. Um, if again, you can pick I'm, one. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think, um, again, I think, you know, some of the policies and procedures around end-of-life care really um, are, because those kinds of things, I think those kinds of changes, because they're um, so intertwined with some of the legal frameworks, right? Just think mm-hmm. about, right? We have that Supreme Court criminalizing um, assistance, and now there's only these two rules that they can. Then what the sort of the federal government did, every province will have to take these big guidelines and make them kind of applicable and accessible and um you know, disseminate them in their own region. So they had to kind of develop their own because providing medically assisted death maybe in British Columbia or in remote um, areas may not be the same as downtown Toronto. You know, if you live in downtown Toronto and you don't have the fields and those kinds of things, it's really hard to kind of even comprehend the kind of snow and the the weather that happens that creates a lot of challenges for travel. Completely different challenges. <laughs> Completely <laughs> different challenges. <laughs> and, right, this is sometimes what happens. So the 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 folks who are in power, not necessarily empowered, in power. <laughs> may not always live in those kinds of areas or they're in a privileged position where it's not part of their everyday. And so they don't think about that. Right. It's 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 the same, same kind of disparity that we have sometimes between those who are creating policies and procedures are, are not, um, are kind of detached from the realities of what happens on the front line. So is is the solution to that, making sure that more people have a seat at the table that may not be in those yeah, and this is what I'm seeing. Oh, you know, we we there were some initiatives to engage patients, to be um, advocates, mm-hmm. to be part of those kind of groups. Uh, unfortunately, I think part, over the last two years that has been um, kind of reduced and reduced. Um, mm. If you follow somebody, um, one of the health healthcare um, uh, journalists, uh, Rob. 
Rob Bell, I think his name is, talks about this, that many of the patient advisory groups and, and probably partly because of um, 2020 and COVID have been reduced. Many of the public boards and associations have been eliminated. So yes, it would help, but I'm seeing that it's not happening, right? And it's not necessarily happening. I know that you do work with like the death doulas of Ontario network. Does that tie into the work that you're doing with like policy changes? Is it more so an So I'm not doing any, I am not within, I'm not within the system. So right now I'm more within the education system. So really engaging, you know, working for two colleges, uh, providing those kinds of things, really looking at how I even in my own personal business as an end of life nurse educator, how can I provide that information? So I'm not, I'm, I'm far away from the, bureaucracy <laughs> because it was it was part of my my own injury being in a system that wasn't necessarily conducive to some of these particular ideals that I may have was mm. very stressful and it wasn't um well, I can any, imagine <laughs> and and there are many many folks who are in these positions still right suffering with moral injury and and all kinds of other things so my create I actually um created the the death doula Ontario network partly as a way of enabling doulas to continue their education because even in the thanatology um, program, even with the end-of-life doula uh, programs, you're not going to get the robustness of what you may need to really help guide people. You get the foundation, you get the basics, but this kind of knowledge needs to be ongoing because it has so much to do with the legal framework. It also has a lot to do with, you know, post-death care kind of stuff. So doulas can help um, in the in the advanced care planning. So having those conversations, they can help in the plan when there isn't necessarily even a terminal diagnosis as a way of serving as educators to help people sort of navigate through their potential experience they're going to have. They can also serve at the immediacy of that active dying process. So doing a lot of that active vigiling, which now they're not necessarily able to do, right? But this really addresses that fundamental need or fundamental desire to not have people die alone and to have someone there, right? Oftentimes a doula may serve in that way. As right now, all of the nurses and the physicians and the healthcare aides and everyone else is serving for many of the COVID patients because even their families may not be able to go, right? And the doulas can also support some of the you know, uh, particulars and the practical kind of things that need to happen post-death, right? So funeral services, what do you need? What don't you need? What can you do yourself? What you, you know, those kinds of, because it varies, right? Like There's so person. much variability, you know, somebody who's receiving palliative care or is at the end of their life in Brockville General Hospital is going to get a very different kind of experience than if they're in Northumberland, right? We have guidelines, but there are there are huge differences. There are huge differences. And so the, the Death Doula Ontario Network, really, again, for education, but also in the uptake of some of these legislative kind of things, right? Because they also... Um, may continue to shift, right? Yeah. And you don't know, you don't know until you're in it, 
right? Until you're in it. And when you're in it, you're consumed by your by that grief process. And it's very difficult to think um, logically sometimes, to think and to pay attention to all the details or to even ask very specific questions. Or you, you may know, not even know a, what questions to ask. Exactly. Because, yeah. How can you know what you don't know yeah. because you've never been through this. So many of the doulas serve in that way to really help in being with the family as they're going through that process so they can help them to ask the right questions. They can help them to advocate, right? They can help them to educate and, and, it, and support them along the way, right? Because it, oftentimes, you know, somebody dies. So when my friend died, right? Yes. That's it. Hospital's done. There's nothing, nothing, no support. Well, you guys have to figure it out. From the the, the doctors and the nurses, it's just kind well, of like, well. I mean, the is... you know they don't know. They're yeah. they're they're doing what they can, and and they oftentimes don't necessarily have some of the other information, right? This is why death doulas in some way are sort of bridging some of the gaps, right? Healthcare providers don't necessarily know what happens post-death and what are the legal requirements. They don't because they're, yeah. they're there for the dying. They're not there for the death. And so when somebody, after somebody dies, then it's resourced out to the funeral home and they may not necessarily know everything or may not be very well versed in, in, in grief support, right? So there's there's huge gaps in our system that that doulas could potentially um, fill. Well, they are filling them right now. Absolutely. Currently, well, 100%. <laughs> hopefully they are. But again, it's <laughs> a lot of it has to do with you know just think about the fact that most Canadians, only about uh, you know a very small percentage of Canadians actually even understand what hospice palliative care is about. We're still many people still think palliative care is about the last last days you know, or hours of life when it isn't. It could be months necessarily. or years depending on be, the situation. Yes. So, you know, what are those? And then the policies then, because unfortunately the policies or guidelines are oftentimes, you know, created so that it's easy for a lot of people to be guided by them. So it may not have um, a lot of sort of diversity or a lot of nuances. Completely. And to your to your comment earlier about how essentially uh, people have to market themselves in these organizations and uh, the work that they do, um, people don't necessarily search them out until they have to. And at that point, it's kind of a little bit too late, which is it might be. unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This yeah. is why I think for me, I'm I'm encouraging a lot of the the doulas to do a lot of public education, even if it's you know on death literacy. So taking the the work of some of our um, some of the Australian researchers, so like Carrie Noonan, you know, and and to put some of those fundamental principles out to you know um, engage people by having book clubs and reading, um, talking about death won't kill you, you know those kinds of things, having death cafes, right? Creating those safe spaces where people can um, explore their interest in death and dying, but also for them to, to get some insight um, and to get some, some support and education. I, I've been to those death cafes, honestly, the year before, uh, 20, when was it? 2019. And it was phenomenal. I befriended some people. They gate, some of them just had cookies. They brought cookies with them. I got free cookies. It was, it was amazing. Um, yeah. so I highly encourage anyone to go check out a death cafe if it's in their area. Um, Olga, we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back. Perfect. 
Isn't she great? Yeah, she's really cool. So when we were recording the interview, I realized that many people may be unfamiliar with the differences between hospice and palliative care, since they both fall under the umbrella of comfort care. It's me. I'm many people. <laughs> you are the universe. So I want us to do a couple rounds of For All I Care. You had that cheering, right? That wasn't just me. Yes, yes. I heard the voices too. Don't worry. For this game, I'm going to say a statement, and you have to determine whether it's hospice or palliative care. Okay, and before we jump into the game, let's do a bit of a breakdown of what the two terms mean. Yeah, of course. So palliative care is for those who are at any stage in their disease, while hospice care is for those who have been given a terminal diagnosis. If I say anything else, I think I'll give away too much. Okay, so palliative is the... Palliative care is non-life-threatening, and hospice care is for, like, the end of life. Yep. Care. You got okay. it. Okay. So I, along with the audience, has already forgotten which is which. So let's do this. So first one. Treatment for this type of care excludes curative treatments. Is it hospice or palliative? Easy. Hospice. Ta-da! Those within hospice care are looking to manage the pain and other symptoms from their illness as opposed to trying to cure it. Okay, I'll do the next one. Mm -hmm. Oh, yours is more difficult. All right. Which type of care takes place in a hospital setting, hospice or palliative? You know, if I didn't study this, I'd say both. Just That just, would just make the most sense. But I'm going to go with palliative. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Palliative care typically happens in the hospital, while hospice care takes place wherever the patient calls home, whether that is a home, a care home, or even a hospital or whatever. My Damas literally would have gone, hospital sounds like hospice, it's that one. Fair, makes sense. So my turn. Physical and psychosocial relief is typically related to this type of care. Hmm. Isn't that a Slipknot song, psychosocial? Anyway, it sounds, oh yeah, it sounds like hospice care to me. It is a trick question. It's actually both. Hospice and palliative care focus on these aspects of a person's care. Wait, wait, wait. Are we allowed to do trick questions? Stacy, can she... Stacy, don't drown me out with the audience. I've told you about this. Okay. What even is psychosocial care? It's the psychological and emotional well-being of the patient. This includes social interactions with others and the intrapersonal relationship with oneself. Yeah, actually, it's, that's a really overlooked element of the grief process. Mm -hmm. That's because no one cares what's going on inside us. People just care about productivity. Yeah, but if we get back into that discussion, this is going to be another two-hour episode. Fine, we won't. This is a rant for a later day, then. Next. People who choose this care option typically choose it because they are seeking relief from pain, fatigue, nausea, and stress that typically comes from illness or medication side effects. Uh, both? Another trick question? Nope, it's palliative. Okay, this game's rigged. Hospice care focuses more on patients who no longer want to take medication or treatments as a way to prolong their life, while those in palliative care are still taking medications and undergoing treatments. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just such a shame that people only care about our oldest, most vulnerable, like after the fact, after they've died. Mm -hmm. It's like we push them aside into care homes and forget they exist. And then that in turn alienates 
our attitude to death. It's like, um, was it the invisible death point of view that we talked about last season? Yeah, exactly. And I'm really glad that you brought that part up. Long-term care homes are notoriously known for having poor living conditions, and it's an issue between private and public ones. And due to COVID, actually, there's been a lot more work and attention being placed on these issues within long-term care homes. Thanks to incredible advocates such as Dr. Vivian Statantopoulos and Dr. Nahid Dosani, who are actually based here in Toronto. Yeah, full respect, man. It it's just a sad-ass world where doctors have to act as whistleblowers. Thanks, Doug Ford. Yeah, but the thing that really grinds my gears is that young people seem to forget that they're going to age and that they are going to die. Their young privilege is temporary and they're going to have to deal with these challenges too if things don't change. That goes for long-term care homes and any other system that revolves around aging, death, dying, and grief. Or, I mean, the option is to die young, but who wants that? Uh, the arrogance of youth. But still, OK Boom is pretty funny, right? Either way, things do need to change. It just grinds my gears, you know? You know that Family Guy did that whole grinds my gears thing first, right? That was 10 years ago. Don't worry, we're fine. Reflecting on this episode, I'm glad that there were advocates in the space such as these doctors, life cycle celebrants, and death doulas, like Olga mentioned, who help people navigate the processes around aging, illness, and dying. Yeah, it's honestly really relieving to see that there are people like death doulas helping families navigate the system because dying is stressful, y'all. Sure is. Maybe the second part of the interview might help you relax a little bit. Ready to get a little more 420 friendly? Oh, yeah. Before the break, we were speaking about education changes and necessary learnings when it comes to death literacy. You've mentioned to me in prior conversations uh, that your education work revolves around a holistic framework. Can you walk me through what that looks like for you and what a holistic approach means? Sure. Um, so I think it means different things to different people. Um, part of my um, sort of influence has also been I have a, um, a spiritual practice that really that focuses on sort of contemporary shamanic um, practices. And one of the um, key teachings is that we actually have these um, aspects of ourselves, which is the kind of the wholeness of us. So we have our emotional aspect, our physical, our mental, our spiritual and our sexual sort of these five key key uh, things that happen um, or sort of that we, uh, you, you can almost call them like filters or the way that we experience life, right? Oftentimes. And so that's my holistic framework, right? Looking at this wheel of um, how we experience life. So through our emotions, which are oftentimes tied to family stories, right? You learn about emotions and feelings from your family, right? As children, Right. This is maybe where some of the um, education for kids might come in, the way in which we are taught to respond to death or those kinds of things or loss or suffering. Right. So our emotional intelligence is is learned from our families, then potentially learned through all of those different organizations. And I would probably say that in the Western world, we're very um mind focused we um we don't always uh look at the heart mind <laughs> right as the yeah. source of information when and i think that there is a lot of emotional intelligence that we can incorporate to help us cope uh 
with with life. And then you have the physical aspect, right? So your body, not just, you know, your how it works and those kinds of things, but also how you hold yourself, right? So how you think about and what are your own attitudes around the wellness of your body? Are you aware of how it how it works, right? Some of that um, kind of education, right? Also socially constructed, right? Um, you know, the politics of the body come into play in death literacy, you know, and especially maybe when, um, because it has to do with dignity, how we approach the person in that physicality, right? How we hold presence um, with them. Then there's the, the mental aspect. So all of our thoughts, all of the ways in which we have constructed our um, ideology, right? Our way of our philosophy, which oftentimes stems from our family, right? There's a wonderful thing about shamanism and, and most indigenous cultures in the world really are about natural cyclical patterns, interconnections, interdependence, and interreliability. So, you know, um, the emotions are connected to the body and the body is connected to the mind as much as the mind is connected to spirit, Right. So it's that holistic framework in that way. So, um, you know, then from that mental aspect, I might, uh, you know, it's really around the philosophies and then how we might be able to even change our way of thinking, you know, getting insight into our emotional wellness, getting insight into our physical, our mental, and then also our spiritual right? That spirit, our connection to um, a higher source, not necessarily religious, right? Of so course. really an, an, an individual's own um, connection to something greater than themselves. And it could be nature. It doesn't have to be a particular um, theology. And then in the center of that <laughs> kind of holistic framework is our sexual, which um, not about sexuality, but this is about the sexual life force energy. Everything in this world is created out of the feminine and the masculine principle coming together and creating, right? Hopefully in that sexual orgastic <laughs> combination, another beautiful life force of some kind, right? Whether it be humans or a plant or a tree or a dog or a cat, they all require uh, those things. So, Oftentimes, um, in my teachings and some of the ways I've brought things together is there is in death, and especially if you're present with somebody who has died, there's this explosion of energy that happens when somebody dies, which impacts you physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And that's that sexual life force energy. Right. Um, uh, in some of the other teachings that I've that I've offered to to doulas, I talk about my own experience of being at the bedside and kind of having this. It was almost like a sexual energy, and I was very shamed in that moment, thinking oh, I'm kind of I'm a little bit aroused, and that's terrible because somebody has died. And then I came to understand that it's this explosive energy, right? As the energy leaves the body and it kind of disseminates into everything, we get impacted by it. Mm -hmm. Were you, was this something that you felt inherently like growing up that you were aware of like the holistic approach just to life no. in general, or was this um, something you learned along the way and then applied? Um, 
probably I, I've been a seeker. I've been a seeker most of my life and really wanted to learn more and more about the human condition and about the human psyche. And so, you know, I've, I've dabbled into, you know, whether it be in um, sort of post-secondary education kind of stuff or where is the information that I need mm-hmm. to create this holistic. And it wasn't until I um, kind of, uh, got involved with a particular shamanic community where some of this particular knowledge was disseminated, that it, it made sense to me. They're not, it's not the only one, um, you know, growing up 25 years ago, right. There's a whole surge of sort of spiritual people who are seeking to acquire some more knowledge and those kinds of things, looking at Buddhist philosophies. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, bringing it all together, right. And, and the, the shamanic wheels and, and the teachings that I was, um, um, given and that I hold with with deep respect really shows that interconnection, right? Because everything is is done on a wheel, and then you can just overlay, 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 and this huge knowledge of this interconnection, which to me spoke about the natural cyclical pattern, where in some of the other education, um, you know, um, the ones that are kind of deemed, you know mainstream that wasn't there for me they kind of went from a b c d to right it's like a line and i'm like life isn't a line it's a circle um and so i'm i i use a lot of those five aspects to even make a uh, you know to do an assessment with clients or people that i'm helping how are you emotionally you know how are you physically how are you mentally spiritually where is your intimate connection to the people um in your environment right I was going to ask, do you, by any chance, when you're going through this process with clients, do you feel any pushback from some of them where they may not relate to the approach you're taking? Or is it, do they come to you specifically because they know that you're this is your approach and they want it? Um, so some folks, because, and, and most of the, the clients that I have now are actually the death doulas that I've trained, <laughs> which is very interesting. And partly it's because they know me, they know, um, you know, they've spent some time with me. So there is already a little bit of a, a rapport and a faith bond that's, that's established, which I think is really hard right, for death doulas. And that's why I'm, I'm sort of suggesting for them to go into those public spaces so that people have some experience with them because this work is so intimate, right? Unless you're embedded into the stream and into the conveyor belt of care, you know, people don't usually seek you out until they've had some exposure and some opportunity to see that you might be helpful, Right. So I, I usually, um, when I have a conversation with a new client, will just talk to them about what their needs are. I don't necessarily overlay this. This is the way in which I work to kind of, and and I might, I probably, I, I, I don't say, you know, I'm going to show you this wheel and we're going to work through that. I kind of say, how are you emotionally? How are you physically, mentally, spiritually? Right. Just uh, a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, because they're the ones, right? They're the ones who are in charge. So I'm really mining, mining to them for their particular experience or their particular needs. And then I can also say, okay, so I, I hear that these are your particular needs. This is how I can serve. And this is how I might be, I, we may need to get some other resources because I'm not able to serve in this way. Amazing. And from a spiritual or holistic practice, where does the cannabis education come into play with this? Like how, what is, well, what first got you interested and is it incorporated <laughs> and how, how is it incorporated? If you can summarize. So I have, I have my own personal experience. So um, how did that come about? So 
when I was in my early 20s, <laughs> or even before that, I didn't have a lot of uh, a lot of experience with cannabis. That was something that that I kind of acquired um, a little bit later. It wasn't until I was in my late 40s that I had another experience, which was very different from the one before. As as a teen, you know, I remember my the the first. Um, the first joint I smoked was at a party and I was up for 24 hours cleaning. And it oh, wasn't man. until <laughs> later that I found out in the research that oftentimes this is what happens. Sometimes when people, um, uh, you know, ingest cannabis and, and have that quote unquote high, because you don't necessarily have to have that high to, in, to, to intake the uh, advantageous properties of cannabis, they will find themselves cleaning or doing something to make things better. <laughs> Very active, very active mindset. Yeah, it can be. It can be, right? I got to do something, right? Because it's all this energy and stuff that's there. Um, And people have a different experience, right? Because not all cannabis, I mean, you've got number of different cultivars, number of different levels, and we're just beginning to understand the endocannabinoid system. You know, sometimes um, people are like, how come they didn't know about this before? Well, because it was illegal. <laughs> yeah. So and they I, couldn't have necessarily studied, although they did. And they that's did, yeah. Right. So as we continue to potentially study more now, we can see how it could be used in a number of different ways, right? So it can be for some people, it works for pain. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it'll make pain worse because it's a complex plant. It's not a, you know, and, and again, for some of the end of life uh, folks, they are, you know, um, medical cannabis has been around and has been legal in Canada for 20 years. Yeah. So people who've needed it and who it's worked for, they've always had the opportunity to have some of that. We have synthetic cannabis as well. The only thing, this is where I think the holistic framework for me comes in where it's really the whole plant because there are a number of different compounds in that whole plant, not just the THC and CBD, that actually have um, some healing qualities. And when you only remove one or two compounds, you're not going to get what's called the entourage effect, where all of those different things are going to be working together, right? It's like a well-balanced meal, right? You can't, yes. you know, because I was a diabetes educator as well, which had a, had a lot to do with balance, right? So if you're going to have the meat, you want to have, or if you're going to have the carb, you want to have some protein and you want to have some vegetables because it'll slow that carbohydrate process down a little bit and you won't get so overwhelmed with sort of uh, uh, that elevated um, sugar level in your in your blood. Right? I remember... So, I was going to say, I just remember when I was first looking into just cannabis use and it, how it can affect certain people. There was a uh, episode that I was watching. I can't remember what the show was called, um, but they were t- looking at a little girl who was suffering from seizures and they gave her, I think it was the CBD or something. Her seizures stopped, which blew my mind. Like this yeah. thing that was made illegal and at the end of the day, it wasn't harming her or anything like that. Her Her health uh got better yeah and still i I think one was that like a few years ago they still had to make the the case for legalizing it that's right again this is the it's it's a very similar thing as end of life so the politics of the body and the politics of of medicine 
But I think that there's an opportunity to utilize this plant to potentially provide a safe space where people could access where, where what in the psychedelic world, they're talking about the inner healing intelligence. So our own innate ability to heal ourselves because our psyche has right some of that insight and so if we if we can take in a substance that will increase that awareness um then i think it could it could be a, a, a wonderful healing modality right it has to be with care you got to do some risk management so for those folks who may be cannabis naive or never had the experience right you want to create a safe space where they can do that same thing with you know i'm looking at now um really working with with some of the folks who are engaging in offering um, support in folks with end of life who want to use psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and other uh, kind of altering substances There's that so much education. have been proven, yeah. that have been proven and shown to really reduce some of that existential anxiety and dread. When you engage with, with substances like that in those states, um, you kind of diminish a little bit of the personality and the ego mind. And you're opening up to um, kind of more of the universal consciousness where more information is accessible to you. And you're, you're connecting more dots in that state as yeah. well. Like yeah. And, and you also need someone who can help you to integrate that experience, right? Because we don't, while we, we still have shamans and we still have medicine people and we still have spiritual guides out there. I think in the West, you know, this is where I think um, there has been a desire for, for some of us to acquire some more knowledge around some of these, um, some of these old medicines that have been used for, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, right? It's only now recently, right? I mean, and, you know, cannabis and hemp was was a, a cash crop and a huge industry in Canada before the 30s. Yep. You know, it was used in everything and it still can be, right? It's, it's, it's far more, um, you know, environmentally friendly and all kinds of different things that, that we can use it for, right? But again, mm -hmm. Those in power may not necessarily want Agreed. that. Yeah, or want that. <laughs> Empowered populations are, are dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Um, Olga, I have one last question for you before we wrap up. And it is, how do you want to be remembered? Well, um, I had this saying when I was in high school that what was more important for me was not necessarily that you remember my name, but that there was something that, that in our engagement or in our conversation that helped you. And so even if it's a fleeting thought, I remember having a conversation one time with this interesting person and this is what they said. And that kind of stuck with me. That's, that's, I think those are my, my, how I want to be remembered. I think for me, the more, more, most important thing is, is to um, kind of create those waves, right? So in the way that we're doing here and, mm -hmm. and sharing what I know without, without, I don't want to be seen as an expert, right? I, I, I like to integrate things together and offer up new ways of thinking. And if somebody at the end of our conversation says, huh, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. That's, that's my legacy. That's oh. what I really uh, appreciate. You definitely did that to me quite a few times in this conversation. So thank you. <laughs> Great. Great. 
Um, uh, Olga, thank you for joining us today. Are there any other last thoughts or words of wisdom you would like to impart before we get going? Um, I would say for anyone who's interested in, in end of life care, you know, I think the, the main thing is, is to do some of that reflective practice. I think I've, I've really found that if you want to support someone else, you need to do your own work. You need to find a place where you can hold, hold a space for yourself before you can hold it for others. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maria. I told you her holistic framework was interesting. You weren't lying. I've literally got so many notes here in front of me. That sounds like a perfect summary for our listeners, no? True. So my top tips from Olga's talking points about grief were, number one, listen to your body's natural responses. Uh, You're the one in the driving seat, so learn what works or doesn't work for you, physically speaking. Number two, incorporate death and end-of-life education into your daily world, not just a specific course or time period. That's how you change the world. Number three, you're not the expert, so recognize there's always more to learn. This applies to education and learning about your own physical reactions to trauma. So back to point one, basically. Wow, look at you. You listened. Proud of you, buddy. Yeah, her breakdown of her holistic framework really made me realize how much we have to consider when it comes to our overall well-being and the interconnectivity of it all, as well as how much we neglect on a daily basis. Yep. Well, I'm a listener. We're in season two now, baby. If we don't start paying attention, we'll never get sponsored by Vivance. (laughs) But interconnectivity, tell me more. When she mentions incorporating this death literacy understanding into everyday life, I've told people that we never will truly honor and appreciate life if we're unable to honor and appreciate death. It's a big reason why our work-life balance is so out of whack right now. Yeah, and speaking of everything being so, so connected, man, psychedelics and end-of-life care, it's a match made in heaven, if you believe in heaven. Yep, she mentions the use of cannabis and other psychoactive ingredients in the support of end-of-life care and pain management. Recently, there were four terminally ill patients in Canada that gained the legal right to use magic mushrooms for end-of-life distress. Yeah, I heard about that. I think it was in BC. Uh, Listeners, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, All my friends back home were sending me that article in droves, all suddenly wanting to visit me. Wait, how that works or not? Ooh, when are we going? Road trip? I want to go on a road trip. A road trip trip. (laughs) Nice one. Well done. So a lot of research has been happening as it comes to drugs such as DMT, MDMA, psilocybin, and even ketamine. Scientists are looking at their roles as it comes to alleviating basically the crushing weight of our existential dread. Yeah, that's actually why there's a lot of um, disassociative psychedelics used to treat things like PTSD. It allows the person taking it to step outside of their trauma and basically create new meanings for things like triggers and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, Exactly. The legalizations of these medicines will also lead to their use for things such as PTSD, anxiety, and depression in the general population. This space is super exciting. Hey, grandma's tripping balls again. I'm glad she's working stuff out. Oh my gosh. Holiday get-togethers are about to get a lot more interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Merry Christmas. Where's Uncle Ted? Oh, he's K-holing under the tree with the cat. Uh, A true Christmas miracle. Jokes aside, though. I agree, man. Medicinal use of this stuff would do wonders for those that need it, and it'll help crime rates go down too. 
Jeez, from the sounds of that Christmas, someone's actually going to end up kissing Santa Claus under the mistletoe. <laughs> we digress. It brings us to the point where we mentioned earlier, these medicines, when consumed safely, allow us to gain a better awareness and understanding of ourselves, what's important in life, and what we need to focus on that other medications, frankly, don't provide. Exactly. And the main thing about this is that a regulated, medically supervised session is going to be a lot productive, and not to mention safer, than, I don't know, traveling to South America for your ayahuasca retreat or something, or just, you know, trying it on your own. I mean, speak for yourself. <laughs> uh, my family's probably going to think I'm some sort of drug kingpin now. It's not true. I just watch a lot of documentaries. The only drugs I need are a heart-stopping amount of caffeine and ADHD medication. This episode is sponsored by Five Ants. Before our listeners become more concerned for you, I think now is the best time to end this episode on a high note. Oh no, this really is becoming the Joe Rogan experience. Okay, uh, I'll start. I'll be Brendan Shubb. Bro, this is like that whole cancel culture stupid, bro. It's not rocket scientist. And on that highly intellectual note, <laughs> I want to end this episode with a quote Olga said. Remember that life isn't a line, it's a circle. Oh, nice. It's at the end of the episode. How do... Damn it, Stacey, stop with the... Okay. Bye, people.